the hard passage we're going to look at today out of God's Word in Luke chapter 3. And so to start, I want to do something just a little different, but I think it's really going to help us feel a little bit of how the audience might have felt when John the Baptist shared this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of paraphrase the message that John the Baptist leads with. It's going to make you uncomfortable. It's going to make me uncomfortable. But I think it's going to put us in a spot where we can get everything we're supposed to get out of this passage. John the Baptist comes out to these crowds that have gathered around, and he says, You hypocrites. What brings you to church today? Why are you here? So you can cross going to church off your checklist? You come to see if you like the music, or like what I say, and then complain? Tell others if you don't? You're supposed to be here to worship. Worship is about what we give. It's not about what we get. We're here to worship. It's supposed to be an attitude of our heart. It's evidence of fruit in our lives. God sees and he knows the hearts of those who are not here to worship. And there'll be judgment. Wow. How does that feel? Does that feel nice? That's the message John the Baptist leads with. I think it's important for us to feel that together to understand what's going on in this passage. Does it make you uncomfortable? makes me uncomfortable. And it's supposed to. So let me try this again without all the harshness. Good morning. (laughs) Welcome to Cape Bible Chapel. My name is James. If you don't know me, I'm truly glad that you're here. I'm glad we're going to get to walk through this passage together. So join me there in the Gospel of Luke, the beginning of chapter 3, and we'll, we'll study this together. I've been studying this book over the last couple weeks, we've seen all that we're going to see about Jesus as a young boy, and now we're getting ready to hear about his ministry as an adult. But first, God sends someone out ahead of Jesus to prepare the way, prepare people for the arrival of his son. And this guy is one of those in-your-face guys. The very first words that Luke quotes from John the Baptist begin with the warm and fuzzy identification of his audience as a brood of vipers. And then it gets worse. I mean, he walks in and he figuratively just smacks these people in the face, like I just did. He challenged their traditions and their practices and their understanding of what it meant to be God's people, and he was bold because he was passionate about the gospel. So as we study this passage together today, we want to pay attention and see, were these people up to it? Were they ready to face a tough challenge? Will we be open today to hearing a tough challenge? If we truly want the best for people, we've got to be willing to make them uncomfortable. I went to an open house a couple years ago, I remember. It was hosted by a couple here in the chapel that I just love. And it was like a two-hour open house, and I just barely made it in time. Me and my family, we, we rolled in like ten minutes before the open house was over. And so this lovely woman who's hosting, you know, she's there at the door, and she greets us, hey, thanks for coming, glad you're here, yada, yada. And so I'm sitting and talking to her, and I notice she's got a big red splooge of lipstick on her two front teeth. And so I said, oh, gosh, thanks for coming, you know, or thanks for having us, everything looks lovely. Hey, by the way, you got some lipstick there on your teeth. And she was mortified, you know. And she grabbed a napkin and wiped it off real quick, and she said, I've been standing here two hours greeting people and talking, and nobody has said anything about the lipstick on my teeth. And, and she said it like it surprised her, but I, I wasn't surprised. We don't like to make people feel uncomfortable, do we? 
Nobody walked in there wanted to tell her about the lipstick. John the Baptist wasn't wired with that gene. He doesn't care if he makes people uncomfortable. He's passionate about the gospel. So get ready. This is God's word. It's recorded by Luke's pen. It's from John's mouth through me here today for all of us. This should get uncomfortable. So let's begin by reading Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Luke writes, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now the trick there is just to read that as fast and as confidently as I can, and you'll assume that I pronounced all those names right. I'm praying that I did. We can do some research, and we can place this at right about A.D. 29. And so Luke gives us this background information on who the religious leaders were and who the national and local leaders are. He kind of covers the whole range at this time. And what he's doing is he's explaining who's in power. And then something unusual happens, something really important for us. Luke says, at the time when all these folks are in charge, the word of, John, word of God came to John, who was living out in the desert. You remember we saw this at the end of Luke chapter 1. Zechariah prophesied that his son John would become a prophet who would then go and preach and prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. But until that happened, John was going to live out in the wilderness. So Luke sets this scene by telling us who's in power at the time, politically, spiritually, and then we see John just walk out of the wilderness, and he's under nobody's jurisdiction. And John has this clear purpose here. Verse 3 says he's going to be preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins around the district in the Jordan area. He ends up performing lots of baptisms there in the Jordan River. That's the area where he's ministering. It's how he becomes recognized as John the Baptist. It's not his denomination. It's what he does. Now, John shows up out of the desert preaching this true gospel. He's been sent to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. He's been given favor from God to accomplish this task. And he's just super confrontational with people who didn't need the true gospel. They thought they were okay. So he arrives, and he's preaching this need for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's three big concepts there. We need to be real clear on them. Baptism, repentance, and sins. And so let's look at them kind of in a reverse order. Because the reason for John's appearing, the reason that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, is because of our sin. We have a sin problem. The gospel is good news of salvation, of forgiveness of sins. It's only good news because there's bad news. You, me, everybody we know, we are sinners. And we aren't just sinners by choice, we're sinners by our nature. 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14, King David is described as a man after God's own heart. We've got to remember David is just a man. So he describes himself this way in Psalm 51 and verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Brought forth in iniquity is David's way of saying, I'm wicked. I've been wicked since birth. And we're all like David. We're all by nature 
sinful. So we commit acts of sin. Anybody uncomfortable yet? Don't raise your hand. Now, the only way to deal with these acts of sin, the individual sins that we commit, is to deal with the problem of sin, our condition of sin. We're not going to have any long-term success fighting our sin problem by trying to address the symptoms. It'd be like getting shot and going to the doctor and saying, hey, doc, I got this, you know, big hole here. Could you stop the bleeding and sew up that hole for me? And the doctor would say, you've been shot. You got a bullet inside you. You've got damage to your internal organs. There's internal bleeding. You got to fix that or you're going to die. And you say, no, no, I'm good, doc. Just sew up that hole for me there. Doesn't make any sense. John's preaching the gospel about having our sins forgiven. And so we need to understand he's talking about our sin condition, not our sin symptoms. He's talking about removing the bullet, not just stopping the bleeding. And so he indicates the way to address our sin problem is through repentance. Now we've got to ask, what's repentance? If we, if we want to benefit from this phenomenal offer of grace in the gospel to undeserving people, then we've got to recognize that we're undeserving. If we think we're pretty special, we think, wow, God sure is lucky to have me on his team. I know a lot about him. Then we are in trouble. And we need to change our minds about that. That's what that word means, repentance. In the Greek, it's the word metanoia. That's literally what it means, a change of one's mind. So John comes and he's preaching about repentance and what he means is he needs people to change their mind with the goal and the hope that that's going to then change their heart and their actions and their attitude about how the forgiveness of sins is accomplished. He's addressing all these Jewish people here in Luke chapter 3 and they think they're going to be saved because they're Jewish. And John's coming and saying, hey, your heritage is not going to save you from your sin." And today we say, hey, being a good person doesn't save you from your sin. Studying the Bible doesn't merit salvation. Biblical repentance is changing your mind. But then we've got to get the application of that. Because that's what John wants them to see. It should involve changing your mind and turning away from an incorrect way of thinking and turning towards the correct way of thinking. Because it's not enough to simply not be wrong you then want to be right. John's introducing this important concept of turning from what is wrong in sin and turning towards what is right in God. We should change our mind and let that change our heart about where true life is, about where joy comes from, about where real abundance is. It's not enough to just avoid wrong things. We want to turn towards the right things. Life, joy, it's not in sin. <laughs> That's just passing pleasure. If we're going to have real joy in our lives, it has to come from turning towards God. It's the only way. By faith in Jesus Christ. We've got to do that. But here's what happened. We messed this up. We got off track somehow in what repentance means. It started like a big old game of telephone, and over here, Somebody spoke it right and said, hey, what it is, it's a change in your mind. results in a change in your heart. You change your actions and your attitude. And it, it filtered down and it got way over here. And somehow we ended up with repentance means stop sinning. You've got to stop sinning. That, that's what repentance is. 
Have you heard people explain it that way before? It's kind of hard. You know, you ask somebody, hey, what, what do you have to do to have a relationship with the Lord? And they say, well, you need to repent. Repent? What do you mean? Well, you know, you've got to stop cussing. And you've got to stop drinking. And you've got to stop looking at pornography. You've you got to stop sinning. What? If I could stop sinning, if I could do that on my own, I wouldn't need God. Call a real quick time out here. The fact that I know from experience that I can't do that on my own is the thing that God used to break me. That's how God lovingly drew me to himself. I know that I need God. I know that I needed a Savior to save me from my sins. So hear me on this. No matter what you've heard in the past, repentance doesn't mean stop sinning. It just doesn't. We can't do that on our own. Stopping sinning can't be a requirement for salvation. So John's preaching to these people. The answer to your sin problem, to my sin problem, is repentance. It's changing my mind and then my heart about who Jesus is. It's turning from the wrong and towards the right. It's realizing that God is holy and I am a sinner. And so I've got to be forgiven. I need to accept God's grace. I've got to respond to the life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ with faith. And then it's that faith that's going to allow me to turn from sin and towards God. Then John says addressing forgiveness of sins through genuine repentance will be demonstrated in baptism. We've got to understand this too because the audience that John was addressing they viewed baptism differently than we do. I loved Malcolm's video. I love all the videos. We're so blessed to have so many folks want to come and be baptized here. And with every person who comes, we do a little baptism counseling. And it, and it feels weird sometimes. It really does. It feels like we're giving them a test on baptism. But we sit with everybody, and we ask them, hey, tell us why you want to observe this ordinance. Tell us why you want to be baptized. Because we value it so much. We see it as this wonderful thing that God has provided so we can have unity as Christ followers. So we ask the folks, hey, why do you want to be baptized? And, and it's not a test, but we're listening to hear them say specific things like, well, it's because I've begun a relationship with God by grace through faith in Jesus. They, they explain they're already saved. And they say, hey, now I want to identify with Christ. I want to be held accountable by a local body. And we're also listening to make sure they don't say that, especially young kids. Hey, I, I want to get baptized because I want to be saved. No. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is a fruit of salvation. It's identification. It's an outward sign of this inward spiritual change. But it's not required for salvation. That's the way we see it. But here when John is talking with this Jewish crowd. Now, they viewed baptism differently. Baptism for them was necessary for non-Jews, for Gentiles. It was a purification ritual. Anybody who wasn't Jewish, who wanted to identify with Judaism, they had to be baptized. It was this ritual purification. So John comes out and he takes this idea of baptism and he applies it to the Jews. He says, if they want to really be spiritually clean, they need to be baptized in water. 
Because if they would do that, if they would be willing to come and be baptized this way, they'd be admitting that they needed the cleaning. They'd be admitting that they were sinners, that that they were going in the wrong direction, and they needed to turn and change their minds. John's whole purpose is for these people to acknowledge their sin and then their need for a Savior. This is the act right here where he's actually preparing people for the way of the Lord. But this whole thing would have been very, very unusual to his audience. And here's a guy who's not a Levite, so he's not part of the priesthood. He walks out of the desert. He's preaching as a prophet. And he starts telling these Jewish people, hey, you better repent of your sin and come and be baptized. It would be shocking, huge shock for these people. And so John quotes some scripture to explain what his purpose is. He wants to remind these people of the prophecy that they know of, that somebody's coming to prepare them for the arrival of the Messiah. Look at verses 4 to 6. As it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way for the Lord. There's John. He's going to come and make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So is Isaiah saying that the Lord is going to come and make the earth flat? Kind of sounds that way, right? He's going to fill the ravines. He's going to bring low the mountains. The whole world's going to look like Kansas. Is that it? No. This is all about the forgiveness of sins. Might be uncomfortable, but John needs to help these people see that they are sinners. And when Jesus comes, then he's going to be there to save us from our sin. He's going to address all the things in this passage. He'll forgive our wickedness. He'll make right our wrongs. He'll straighten out the crooked things. If we respond with faith, we'll see the salvation of God. And he'll come and he'll fill in the ravines and the holes, gaps in our lives. If we accept this free gift of grace, he'll come and he'll carve down the mountains. He'll bring those high things low. John's talking about pride and selfishness, and self-exaltation. God will come and he'll tear those things down. So Isaiah is prophesying, and John is preaching, the true gospel is going to come and just blow all these things up. It's going to make a level playing field. And so we won't camp out in the valleys anymore. And we won't try to build mountains of pride anymore and brag about those, because God is coming in the person of Jesus Christ to be our Savior to forgive our sin and save us from the consequences of our sin if we'll just receive this grace. And so that's the message that John has been sharing out in this region. He traveled around preaching about what Jesus was coming to do, about the true gospel, and then what the true gospel should produce, which is inside of us a desire to repent of anything that can't earn us salvation. Get rid of those things and instead just receive God's grace. And so John comes and it's a tough message. And it's kind of amazing to me because I think he's just hammering people with the truth. We see these huge crowds now of folks are showing up to be baptized. But John recognizes they aren't all there for the right reason. He knows that some of them want to come 
and be baptized just to look good. They want to give the appearance of repentance, but they, they don't want to actually admit that they have something to repent for. If you correlate this account with Matthew chapter 3, apparently there were some religious leaders that show up. Pharisees, some Sadducees. Luke doesn't mention them. And these folks come, and they don't want to really change their mind. They just want to be part of this cool thing that the wild preacher's doing. And so John is really going to let them have it. Read verses 7 to 10 with me. This is the passage I paraphrase to welcome you here today. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children in Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? So do you remember how it felt at the start of this message when I called you hypocrites? Would it make you feel any better if you know I pulled the punch? I didn't even come close to using the same language that John uses here. This Jewish audience, they knew the creation story very, very well. So they know that it's the serpent who deceived Eve. And that act made possible every bit of depravity and wickedness that we see on this planet. And now John comes out and he calls these people serpents. He calls them snakes. It's not a term of endearment. I don't know that there's really a better translation than he just called these people the children of the devil. And who are these people again? This is God's chosen people. John says they're a brood of vipers because they won't admit that they have a need to repent. They just want to keep the law unto righteousness. They just want to be good people. These are the people who are very proud of their heritage, very proud of their obedience, very proud of their standing before God. We have a name for these people today. We call them religious. These people who think they're good enough, by comparison to other people. They think they're good enough to merit salvation. These are the people who go to church. They don't murder or cheat. They give to charities. These are good people. And so John asked them a rhetorical question. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And it's completely rhetorical because John knows it had to be God through the person of the Holy Spirit who was stirring people's heart to come and hear this message. I mean, this is a guy who walks out of the desert. Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, say he's wearing camel's hair for clothes. He's eating bugs. He comes out, and the very first message he says is he calls these people the children of the devil. How did this guy draw a crowd? I mean, seriously, who's signing up for this? What's the reason these people stuck around? Well, they're God's people. And they'd heard messages for years about the coming Messiah. And they understood when he comes, there's going to be this message of either divine blessing or wrath. And they stick around because they're sure they're going to hear about the blessing. They had always, always, always been convinced that they would be blessed because of 
who they were because of what they did. And that whole idea makes John furious. He's just fighting mad because many of these people who were coming down to him to be baptized were religious. And so they didn't understand the message that he was preaching, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins because they didn't think they had any sins. And we can be so guilty of this today. We think repentance is for those people who have recognizable sins. So the drunkard has to repent, and the glutton has to repent, and the adulterer has to repent, and the robber has to repent. And if they do that, they can live a good life. Repentance is for sinners to repent of their sin. And we fail to remember that repentance is truly about a change of mind. It causes a change in our heart, a change in our actions and attitudes. And so we fail to see the need to repent of religion. Instead, we place religion, we place those good things we do in front of our relationship with God. We place serious Bible teaching in front of our relationship with the Lord. But since we aren't drunkards or adulterers, then we think we're okay. These people that have come down to have John baptize them, they just want to look good. They want to participate in whatever thing they think will earn them some credit. Please hear me on this. We do these same things today. We add things to God's Word. We'd never say it out loud. We wouldn't say that we do that. But we elevate tradition or rule-keeping or reading our Bibles or how much we study, and we compare ourselves to other Christians. Oh, those guys, they don't take communion near as much as we do. And so we try to feel good. And what happens then is the religion becomes our pride in our work and the things we do instead of our relationship with the God who called us. And that's sad. The Apostle Paul laments over his former way of life in Philippians chapter 3. Beautiful passage where he explains that true Christ followers worship in the Spirit of God. Worship is our spiritual act of service. I said it earlier. It's responding to who God is and what he does. We're supposed to worship. True worshipers respond to God's grace. And Paul says they put no confidence in the flesh and what they could accomplish on their own. And in that passage, Paul explains to us, because he's inspired by God to do it, to help us see and apply this point, that if someone would want to try and boast in the stuff that they've done, they'd want to try and earn forgiveness of sins, he says, hey, nobody could top me back when I was Saul. Paul says, I was the man. I was religious. Ooh, I kept laws. I got circumcised. I had the right heritage. Boy, if salvation could have been earned, I could have done it. But look at what he says about all that religion. Up on the screen, starting in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3. It says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not knowing about him. 
He says, for I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish. When he says rubbish there, he means dung. He views all the religious works that he did as dung compared to having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul says he gains Christ. Verse 9, and may be found in him. Listen, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, obedience to the law, things I could do, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Why? In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's harsh about religion. About claiming anything other than faith in Jesus in the place of faith in Jesus. He calls it rubbish. Well, John had that view first. John is telling these people that not repenting of religion is just as bad as not repenting of sin. It's offensive to God. You've got to hear me on this, please, as we process how to apply this hard, hard teaching in our lives. Religion is trouble. It either ends up in pride or despair. Do we understand that? We either do all the stuff, we follow all the rules, we study the Bible to the point where we're convinced we're mature, and the church should be glad to have us, and we become proud and arrogant. Or we fail at keeping all the rules, we fail at doing all the work, and then we're miserable because we think we aren't good enough for God. It's a lose-lose. There are people in this church today who need to repent of sin, I guarantee it. And there are people here today who need to repent of religion, need to repent of good things that we value over God. One's no better than the other. And so John calls these people to repent. He says you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You need to act in such a way it'll show that you understand repentance. And this is so neat. We see this in the Bible. He knows things. He jumps ahead. He addresses the next incorrect thing that they're going to say. But we're children of the promise. We're children of Abraham. They're playing the heritage card. We're from the right tribe. We're from the right people. And this is, a, this is an especially silly argument. Because the person whose heritage they're claiming, Father Abraham, he was a Gentile to begin with. He wasn't one of God's people. God came to him and chose him and showered him with grace, and then Abraham responded with faith. That faith is what was credited to him as righteousness. So righteousness came to Father Abraham the same way it's come to everybody since him. Every person who's received it, it's by faith, not because of what tribe they're from. So John's teaching these people. And he's teaching us, don't think your heritage will save you. Don't think who your parents are will save you. Don't think what church you go to can save you. Because he's saying heritage, morality, those things are inadequate for salvation. All these people that are showing up to be baptized by John, he's saying this is false repentance. And then he warns them about the wrath 
He says the axe is at the root. It's ready to chop down the trees that don't bear good fruit and throw them in the fire. And John adds, hey, if you think God can't do that because you're Abraham's children, don't go there. Don't put God in a box. God will make these rocks into Abraham's children. And, and so this harsh, this brutal message of wrath, instead of the divine blessing they were expecting, wrath for those with false repentance or no repentance. I love this in the passage. It works. This message strikes a chord with God's people. They're up to the challenge, even though it's uncomfortable. God uses John the Baptist to wake these folks up from their religion and recognize their true need for a Savior. They're convicted. So they ask, well, then what shall we do? Look at verse 11. And he'd answer and he'd say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Some tax collectors also came to be baptized. They said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Some soldiers are there. They were questioning him, saying, what about us? What shall we do? He said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. He says, be content with your wages. Now, we've got to go slow here and, and be careful and really understand what John is preaching. Or otherwise, it's going to look like he's saying, hey, you can't do things. You can't do things to earn salvation. You can't do things to be considered righteous. Don't get baptized to try and look clean. Don't count on your family heritage to save you. Don't keep a checklist of things that you're supposed to do. But then it looks like he gives these people a checklist. He says, okay, here's what you got to do. You got to be generous. You got to be honest. You got to be content. Listen, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, to receive the forgiveness of sins, go out and be generous and honest and content and you'll earn your own salvation. No. Here's what he's saying. To gauge those particular things, or honestly to gauge any fruit in our lives, we've got to examine ourselves. We've got to look inside and realize we're only going to have true generosity, true honesty, true contentment when we examine ourselves. We're the ones who have to look and see if we're bearing fruit that would display in our lives the evidence, the attitude that we've repented. We've turned away from this notion that we could be generous enough or anything enough to save ourselves. We're the ones who are going to know if we've turned away from talking about contentment, but it's really pride, and talking about how much we have and how easy it is to be content. See, that's just pride. This is John pointing to the evidence that reflects the attitude of our hearts. And he says somebody who's truly repented, they'll bear fruit. And so they won't walk by and see somebody who's shivering in the cold and stop and say a prayer that goes, wow, God, thank you that I've got six coats at home. That's not repentance. It's not a good prayer. John's saying, examine yourself and give that guy a jacket. That's fruit. You shouldn't walk by and see starving people and throw up that prayer, wow, thank you, Lord, that I've got two refrigerators at home. I've got a pantry full of food. No. Fruit in keeping with repentance is going to be giving that guy a sandwich. 
John's teaching them, he's teaching us how to apply this notion of bearing fruit in keeping with true repentance. He's saying, you, me, examine our hearts and bear fruit. It's not you and me keep a list of things that we need to do. It's not that. can't do those things to be forgiven. The entire passage, people, it's all about living lives of abundant joy, of turning to God and living in joy, and then we'll see generosity and honesty and contentment. We'll bear fruit solely because we received God's grace. It's not go try and pursue happiness, achieve some happiness by trying to be generous or honest or content, by giving away our extra stuff, not cheating, not coveting. And it's so telling in the instruction, I think it's kind of broken down into these two parts. Because the first, what should we do, comes from what is supposed to be the picture of the common man. This is just the crowd questioning John. And so he instructs them, give. Go and give of the blessing that God has given you. But then these folks come who had these notoriously corrupt or wicked jobs back in the day. And do you notice? He doesn't tell them to give. He tells them, stop taking. If you would stop taking, if you'd stop abusing your power, that would show that you've thrown yourself on the mercy and grace of God. That would show people genuine evidence that you want to bear fruit. We're here today as proclaiming Christ followers. We're supposed to examine ourselves. We're supposed to be honest with ourselves before God. We're supposed to live lives of repentance. We're supposed to live lives of turning away from sin and turning towards God by faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, John is just hammering these folks. As he comes and he smacks them upside the head, we need to understand here today, sharing hard information like this, it's got to be motivated by love. Or otherwise, it's just mean. This is one of the hardest passages I've ever had to preach because I kept wanting to pull back on the reins and not smack you guys. And I got to realize, if I really love you, I got to be willing to smack you. An uncomfortable-sounding message like this, I think, has to be accompanied by a passion for God's glory. And that's where God met me this week. If I really want him to get all the glory, you got to preach his word accurately. Now, it looks to me like John hides the love here. But he's more than willing to make these folks uncomfortable. I've got to assume it's because he wants the best for these people. And so when he sees people walking around like they're perfectly okay, they're just fine because they're God's chosen people and they're not examining themselves, they're not bearing fruit, they're not living in the abundant joy that would show they've repented, John won't stand for it. He won't stand for it because he loves the Lord. He loves these people. He loves the gospel message. But as Christ followers today, we can really struggle with this. We can. We can think we're okay because we go to church a bunch. We value serious teaching. Well, we might do that, but what if we've forgotten the joy of the Lord? We value anything in this life more than our relationship with God. We need to repent. We need to examine our heart and ask ourselves if we've replaced worship. Have we replaced responding to God with preferences 
for what we like. So when we come to the worship service, boy, it better be what I like. Are we living with joy by faith? This is critical. In another area, it's our witness as Christ followers. Fruit in keeping with repentance is about joy in the Lord. It's not walking around and and grudgingly keeping rules, grumbling and complaining about the things we don't like. I mean, just practically, how will we show people? How will we explain to people that we love the Lord? We're in a relationship with Him, and we desire to examine ourselves and bear fruit in our lives. How will we do it? always makes me think of the illustration of marriage. When people just view my marriage from the outside, or even if they'd come and ask me, hey, James, how's your marriage to Christina? I mean, ask me that. In truth, I could praise God forever. I'm so blessed by my marriage. But what if people asked me, and I said, well, I made a commitment. I gave my word when I said my vows, so I'm, I'm sticking with marriage, but Honestly, I don't enjoy it much. I'm not getting much out of it. There there doesn't seem to be much in it for me. But I made a promise. So I'm going to keep slogging through it. I'm actually going to give a little less effort because I don't feel like I'm getting what I need. What if I said that? That fire you up? Is anybody running out to get engaged with that ringing endorsement? No. No. But that's what we do with following Jesus sometimes. We claim Christ, but then we go around grumbling and complaining about obedience and submission. And we complain if things don't work out the way we want. And we say we want to identify with Christ. I go to church. But when we come, are we willing to examine ourselves and repent and change our minds and bear fruit and live lives that others will see are generous and honest and content. When we live lives that others, that outsiders, would see and be drawn to and attracted to. Do we talk about our relationship with Jesus with joy? Or are we a brood of vipers? If we are, then we better repent. Because the axe is laid against the tree. That's John's uncomfortable message. Change your mind. Let that change your heart, your actions, so we can bear fruit for God. God sent His Son so we could live in great abundance and joy. It's not too late. It's not. If you're here today and you'd like to repent of sin, I'm begging you, please, come talk to me after the service. Talk to an elder. Talk to somebody. Make sure somebody knows that. But if you're here today and this message made you really, really uncomfortable and you'd like to repent of religion, you recognize today you've been placing anything, anything, your preferences, your maturity, your service, your comfort, anything above your love for the Lord, man, I'd encourage you to tell somebody that as well so that you can be held accountable and so you can live lives that show repentance and bearing fruit. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this hard 
passage. Thanks for making me uncomfortable, for making us uncomfortable. God, the reality is the gospel message is going to offend people who don't see the need for a Savior. Coming face to face with the fact that we can't save ourselves. We desperately need you. That'll, that'll challenge us. And so, God, I pray you do your work. You draw people to yourself in the way you, you broke me and drew me. I'm so thankful. God, help us if we need to repent of religion. God, help us if there are things that we place above you. God, we love you so much. We ask all those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.